And so Stravinsky harmonizes it for her four voices and gives that manuscript back to Mr. Balanchine. And I got a copy of it in the 90s uh, from the Harvard Library where a lot of um, Stravinsky and Balanchine's uh, personal effects and manuscripts lived. Really? And um, I started thinking, well, this it was so lovely. And the idea yeah. that one master had given it to his friend, another master in another discipline, and that Stravinsky had harmonized it and given it back, it just seemed like it was begging to be something larger. I'm talking to David Israel today, the composer, author, screenwriter, and director. David. Hello. Well, thank you so much for uh, for inviting me on this. I mean, I, I've been watching the episodes. It's unbelievable the depth and breadth and range of people that you have on your show. Yeah, thank you. It's it's wonderful to meet you here on Zoom, and and thank you for watching. I mean, I'm trying to um, to prove also all the different forms of art, and also speak to people. Uh, about the different forms of art, you know, that we we uh, don't usually think about. But yeah. you've got an amazing story. I've read about your work, and um, I mean, you're a you're a composer, you're a screenwriter, you're an author, you're a producer, you're a director. I mean, all these creative things that you are doing yeah. is amazing. Pardon? And a dad too. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> that's, that's a full-time job by itself sometimes. <laughs> and that's that's a wonderful um a wonderful thing to be as a dad. Thank you. Yeah, it's been um it's been a fun journey. Um lots of ups and downs, probably more downs than ups, but it's what you sign up yeah. for when you're in the arts, as you know. Yeah. yeah, no, that's true. But um you are a composer that that has a, a great interest in in dance. You you compose mainly. Is it could I say you compose mainly for dance or ballet? Yeah. Mm. Yes, that's my my most. Um, I mean, I'm mostly interested in dance because I love the theater and I love okay. the experience of being in a theater and always have since I was a, a little guy. Uh, and as a composer, you, you kind of have three options if you want to work in the theater. You have the movies, you have opera, and you have dance. Um, and opera uh, never really excited me. Um, just not enough action. Didn't feel as sensual an art form. Very interested in the sensuality of dance. Um, and of course, you're being told a story in opera. Yeah. And go along for the ride. Whereas with a lot of dance, especially the kind of dance that I'm most interested in, compose mostly for, um, you're, you can, as an audience member, you can bring your own story to the dance because it's mostly abstract. I'm not talking about Romeo and Juliet or Swan Lake or yeah. Nutcracker. I'm talking about your, your standard mixed rep evening, which is, you know, two or three or four uh, pieces, usually between 10 and 30 minutes in length, you know, separated by intermissions, and they don't generally have stories or narratives. Um, and so that was fascinating to me as a storyteller, that 
you could have one thing in mind as the creator and an audience member or a concert goer or dance goer could sit there and bring their own experience to it, um, which makes it multi-layered. That was fascinating. And then movies, uh, that's a whole different talent. You have to be a very fast writer, which, and I'm very slow. My last piece from New York LA took 28 years from start to finish. So, um, and I write slowly. I mean, that was the process of getting the commission and and getting the whole thing mounted, but also I write slowly and I enjoy the process. I mean, I write, you know, with pencil, like it's still pretty pretty computer era. So um, the process is, is the most enjoyable part for me. So I'm a slow writer. So movies were out and opera was out. And so dance, it had to be. But I first want to say about the writing still in pencil. And um, I spoke to a composer a while ago and and he said when he initially started writing uh, music, he also didn't have the computer. But then the moment you hear the music then for the first time when the orchestra plays it or when musicians have your music, um, it's so wonderful. Do you have that same experience? Yeah, um, it's both wonderful and uh, scary because okay. you're afraid, you know, that what you wrote isn't going to be playable here or there, or the French horns are going to drown out the winds and the, the brass are going to be too loud and overpowering. There's a lot of like mixing and balancing things that can make you pretty anxious before you hear it. But generally especially now I'm in my mid fifties. Um, I'm not a kid anymore. I've done, done this a lot and often enough that I think I know how to orchestrate. So generally the experience is uh, it's pinch me. I mean, it's just when, really? you, when, when you finally hear it in a good hall with a good orchestra, it's just, yeah, it's, there's nothing like it. That's part That's of the process good. that we yeah. were talking about. you're often the only person in the hall. So it's not like they're performing for anybody. It's not that kind of excitement, you know, a gala or the adulation of concert goers or dance goers afterwards. It's really just about the process of creating the music in that moment. And it's pinch me. But now, did you dance yourself? No. No, I mean, um, I had one dance lesson when I was working with Twyla Tharp, sort of as a joke for one of my birthdays. But uh, and there's a videotape that exists. Uh, it's pretty embarrassing. I'm I'm pretty bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> so no, never dance. But that I when... dance. I yeah. dance. You know, at weddings. Oh yeah, I like, yeah, yeah. I like yeah. to move my body to music. I do it when I'm composing. Just spinning around here in my studio. Really? Yeah. I, w- I wanted to ask you now. So when you write the music, do you f- see the dance or or um, yeah. you make the movement to, to, to understand? No. Okay. I mean, the choreographer is tasked with, with making the steps. But in my head, uh, I'm always picturing movement and I'm feeling the music to... It has to work for me. It has to work for my body, even though the choreographer is going to come up with something completely different. Um, it's still important to me that I can move to it and it can move to my body. It's it's a somatic thing. Does it bother you when the uh, choreographer has something else in mind where you had maybe this idea when you were writing? It can. 
but you know i defer to them because hopefully they defer to me on the music side of things too oh okay mm. so they, there has to be also a bit of a communication between you and the choreographer yeah and sometimes you know you you are wonderfully surprised the choreography often is like way better than anything i could really? have moved mm -hmm. in, in my brain or here in my studio, you know, moved mm -hmm. to. So is it something like you you have to release it in a way, you know, like you you That's have it and you work on it and then it's like, okay, now I I sort of give it into somebody else's hands or, or you, you have to have the dancers also understand what was the idea. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination and it's always different. Um, everybody, I, every choreographer I've worked with, you know, from when I was in college up till today has a different approach. Um, there's a different amount of back and forth that certain choreographers like, They're very hands-off, very hands-on, coming into the studio periodically to hear things or just give it to me at the very end. Um, and the way that gets communicated to the dancers is always different too, depending on, on who's making the dance. So um, for each piece I've done, I could tell you a whole different story. It's, really? It's not like there's a way, mm. you know. But now you, you've also worked with Paul Taylor. Mm -hmm, yeah, That's, uh, that was one of the my very first experiences. Um, yeah. I had gone from working with student choreographers in college to suddenly working with one of the best there's ever been. And um, it was it was quite special. We met, we wound up doing uh, two pieces together in the late 90s. And um, he, he was a great influence on me too, really opened my eyes to a different kind of movement because um, coming from the Martha Graham School, much different from uh, the sort of Balanchine, you know, point shoe, more balletic uh, pieces that I was familiar with and, you know, sort of wanting to work in. But uh, yeah, Paul was, Paul was a force. Really? But now when, uh, for you then as a young, comp you, you were then young when you said you, you just came out of college, um, mm -hmm. how much, uh, did you have so when you work or or say on average when you work with a compose uh, with a, a choreographer is it usually the way uh, which way around is it that the choreographer commissions you for a work and you have then the freedom or do you have to sort of go with what what he or she says uh what is what they want yeah so like I said before, it's always different. You know, with okay. Paul, um, he had gotten a CD of mine um, through a mutual friend, a dance writer actually named Mindy Awaw, great woman. And um, she was championing my music and she was writing a piece um, on him, like a profile and gave him a CD. And he spent months listening to the CD and then called me up and said, I want to do a dance to this part, you know, this, oh. this piece on your CD. Um, and so there was, it wasn't as much a commission as it was sort of a licensing 
agreement uh, for the first piece. Then as we were working together, we found that we had ideas for a new piece and um, we went back and forth on what that would be. And then when we sort of finally decided it's gonna be X, um, the company commissioned me to write the score, which took about a year, it was for full orchestra. Um, and then once he got the full score, he started making the piece. So in that case, um, it felt very much like sort of an old fashioned Diagolevian kind of collaboration where, you know, we birthed this thing from, from the narrative and the genesis to you know, the final product, which still gets performed. Uh, it's been revived a few times since the, the late nineties. But it must be amazing because you think it's, um... Uh, it's two different, two different things, two different disciplines. Do you say disciplines that you have, um, that the the choreographer and the composer working together? Is there something uh, that you uh, learn from each other, or that you that you learn that you you uh, apply then in the music, or that you make that makes you compose then differently? Do you I know what? So. I mean? Yeah, I mean, less so from Paul and more so from just spending so much time at the State Theater watching Balanchine and Robin's work and understanding why these pieces were still in the repertoire. Like what Balanchine made, I don't know, three, four hundred pieces, but we see, you know, the same 30 or 40 season after season, decade after decade, what makes those pieces work? Mm -hmm. um, it usually starts with a really good piece of music, uh, but not always, but not always. And of course, the choreography is, is wonderful, but there's there's more to it than that. It's what the length is, what, um, you know, what the theme is. So spending so much time, you know, watching these pieces, learning from them, and what the takeaways were, I think, influenced me more than sort of whatever Paul and I did together uh, in the late 90s. So, it, I mean, you have to learn. There's different yeah. ways to learn. Mm -hmm. But I read somewhere that you you had a, a, you were interested in musicals when you were younger. Mm -hmm. And and uh, also you had you had something, uh, and, and I'm not sure completely. If I understood it right, but um, um, with Wayside Story, did you did you have did you do editing on the music or uh, what exactly yeah. was the project there? So um, Bernstein, toward the end of his life, um, was trying to record all his theater scores for Deutsche Grammophon and get the scores published for the first time by Boozy and Hawks, his publisher. Um, there had surprisingly never been a full score for West Side Story or for On the Town or for Candide or for Wonderful really? Town or for Mass. No, you could rent the parts yeah. and you get a piano, what's called a piano vocal score, which is what the conductor would work from. But there was no score. And Lenny was very interested in being taken seriously like opera composers were and opera scores were always available. You could go and buy Tosca, or you could buy, you know, Carmen. 
um, and study it, different versions of the score, the big score, the little pocket score. So he thought, of course, um, he struggled a lot in his life to get these pieces taken seriously so that he wasn't just thought of as some Broadway pop composer. Um, and so the deal that he struck was that Boozinghawk would finally publish, um, you know, the definitive editions that would incorporate various changes, fixes, corrections, edits that um, were compiled over years and that would be continued, continued to be compiled when I came into the, the circle and, and was employed by Bernstein's estate after he died. So he before he died, he only had the opportunity to record one of them, uh, maybe two. Did he do Candide? I think he did Candide and West Side Story. Um, but the scores weren't done. So my job was to take all the material that he used in the recording session when he recorded it in the mid or late 80s before he died, compare it to the original version, the movie version, um, notes that he had, notes that other folks, you know, advisors to the estate had, and get that definitive score published finally. And it took a long time, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. so a piece. Um, and there were small errors and things that they hadn't even found, you know, before I got there, uh, big, like egregious things. Um, and, and it was amazing experience. I had just literally graduated college and moved into his house in Dakota um in new york city and it was like getting paid to do your phd and wow. west side story was well first symphonic dances for west side story which is a 20 25 minute um instrumental you know orchestral piece that was culled from the musical that was my first job and then my second job was uh was west side story the full show well, when I read that, I'm, I'm such a big a fan of West Side Story. I mean, I think this is such an incredible film that with the dancing and the music, everything. And when I read that, I thought, wow, what a, that must be one of those things where you think you had part of, because it's, it's history, really. It is. I think yeah. when people look at musical theater, you know, 50, 100, 150 yeah. years from now, it will still be one that they talk about that was like no, no other you know it was not the yeah. sound of music exactly um, yeah it's it's it, there's probably like five pieces of musical theater that will stand the test of time and i think it's definitely one of them yeah no absolutely but now you've recently done also a um work with the New York City Ballet, and it's about a, a Balanchine. A, a, is it a poem that that uh, did... Yeah. Uh, um, Balanchine wrote the poem. Am I right? He, yes, you're right. He, it was more than just a poem, though. He oh. set the poem to music for Stravinsky's 64th birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, they were wonderful friends, uh, having done so many pieces together. And also both sort of, you know, Russian expats first living in, in France and in exile and then eventually settling in the United States, going back and forth between Los Angeles and New York. Um, and uh, so Mr. Balanchine comes out from New York uh, in the 40s 
and he is living in Beverly Hills, and uh, Stravinsky is living uh, in West Hollywood at the time, and they get together often for dinners, chit-chat, pieces that they're working on together, and at one of these little um, celebrations for Stravinsky's 64th birthday, he presents this very short, funny uh, song that he had written, a cappella, sang it, um, and gave the manuscript to Stravinsky, and Stravinsky liked it so much and was so touched that he said, you should harmonize this, you know, flesh it out yeah. for, for more voices. And Balanchine said, I'm not the composer here. So Stravinsky took it upon himself. And that's not true. Balanchine actually was a composer. He had studied music in college at the same time that he was in, in the theater school in St. Petersburg studying dance and was a wonderful musician. I mean, that's, I think, the biggest ingredient and key to understanding why his choreography is heads and tails better than anybody else's. He was a wonderful musician, really understood music and could compose music. His father was a composer. And um, and so Stravinsky harmonizes it for, for four voices and gives that manuscript back to Mr. Balanchine. And I got a copy of it in the 90s uh, from the Harvard Library where a lot of um, Stravinsky and Balanchine's uh, personal effects and manuscripts lived. Really? And um, I started thinking, well, this it was so lovely. And the idea yeah. that one master had given it to his friend, another master in another discipline, and that Stravinsky had harmonized it and given it back, it just seemed like it was begging to be something larger. So yeah. I started, yeah. <laughs> but, I started, so you just accidentally stumbled upon it uh, or is it known is it was it known that it was there uh, it wasn't it was barely known uh, there okay. was one recording that existed um, yes. that i hadn't yet heard when i found the manuscript and it was like you know it's 22 seconds long so nobody was getting very excited about oh, yeah. this thing except for me and maybe robert Kraft, who was stravinsky's uh, you know, personal assistant slash conductor slash academic mm -hmm. uh, advisor and, and biographer, everything. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it would be like Petty Pond Tchaikovsky co-writing a little piece of music. You would have to do something and to help get that out to the world. So yeah. um, I decided it should be the theme upon which I base variations. So it became a theme in variations. Uh, about 30 minutes long and, and it was finally mounted um, almost a year ago you know we're coming up this this May 5th will be the one year anniversary on the premiere amazing but I had started writing the variations on Bernstein's piano in the Dakota when I was still working there and I was already sort of picturing it uh, in the pit coming out of the State really? Theater which was 10 blocks south of the Dakota and I could just imagine you know what a what a glorious amazing. that would be so yeah. back to your you know how does it feel when you when you hear your music for the first time in rehearsal that, that among all i mean from all my pieces that one will always stand out as the most exciting moment because it took 28 years to get it really? there <laughs> and 
you know, to realize that and to, yeah. to persevere. And the choreographer that worked on it wasn't even born when I had started working on the piece. Really? But so that um, kind of journey, you know, and I had almost given up many times along the way. Just uh, it was it was such a pinch me moment. But now I want to know about the 28 years. Why did it take so long? Was it um, or is it just something that you didn't know how to make it work? I wish I could say that was the answer, but um at first, the Balanchine Trust, sadly, was opposed to the idea. I they, didn't, okay. they didn't. The woman who was running the trust did not think anybody would be interested in Mr. Balanchine's music, didn't grant permission. So then it sort of died a bit, even though I had started sketching. Um, and then somebody else came along and took over the Balanchine Trust. And she happened to love my work and was a big fan. So there was a different attitude at that point. Um, and she granted me permission. It still took another 10 or 15 years to, to uh, Peter Martins was running New York City Ballet from the time that Mr. Balanchine died in the 80s. Um, and then the Me Too movement came along and Peter Martins was suddenly gone from the company, which created an opportunity. Wendy Whalen stepped in as co-artistic director and she heard the, the little snippets, the little sketches that I had written and fell in love with this whole idea and was already sort of thinking in her head like, oh, we're gonna be doing this 50th anniversary of the Stravinsky Festival that Balanchine created in the, in the early seventies. This would be, a perfect place to do this world premiere. So I think it was partly fate, partly timing, you know, mm -hmm. partly just perseverance and, and waiting yeah. for the moment. So I love, yeah. the moral is never give up if you really believe. <laughs> um, this, this really fascinates me. I love these stories of this type of thing, you know, that there's something that, that has to happen, but it takes time to happen. That is, you know, and this, like you say, the perseverance behind it and the patience and the belief, because it's a belief that it, that it will work, that you had. Yeah, I mean, imagine if um, J.K. Rowling had stopped after her first round of rejections. Exactly. Nobody wanted Harry Potter. Yeah, nobody, yeah. Nobody thought it would sell, or nobody wanted to touch it. And but she persevered and waited and waited until some academic publisher came along and took a chance on it. And you hear those stories all the time. Like Always, yeah. Smart said, right, the best-selling out female uh, artist album of all time, Jagged Little Pill. Everybody passed on it. Nobody wanted to put that record out. So. If you, you know, if you're passionate about what you're doing and you believe in it, just keep at it. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Now, I, I also um, believe in that and, and that the, there is a timing for everything and the right people get together for this to happen. But David, I want to know now you as a child, uh, <laughs> Where did this uh, love for music start? Did you compose already as a young boy? 
I did. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't write anything down, but um, my parents, they had a, a box, a chest, uh, like a toy chest of instruments, like a African uh, zebra skin drum and a recorder and castanets and tambourine and um, gosh, my mom's old nylon string guitar. So I discovered this box and I assume they did it on purpose um, because these tactile things were great for little kids and just they loved music, um, not in any serious way, but they were they were big fans of, of music. And so um, I got into this box quite, quite young and started making music. And then um, I discovered their record collection. And the one that um, that really pulled me in, I was probably four or five years old, and I learned how to put the albums. They taught me, you know, how to put them on the spindle or whatever it was called and put the yeah. needle on the, yeah. on the record was Sgt. Pepper, uh, Lonely Heart Club Band. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, the whole experience from, like, the cardboard cutouts that came in yeah. the sleeve and the wonderful packaging and the fact that there was this this real band trying to be another band and there was all this humor in it and orchestral music, right, with these big sounds and sitar. And it was so different from, from anything else in their record collection. And I would just listen to it constantly, and I probably you know, played along with some of these toy instruments until I could actually compose something uh, and write it down, which was, I was probably about 12 years old at that point and was studying guitar and trumpet. So the first written down compositions, which weren't actually written down, they were just, you know, chord uh, oh, yeah. progressions yeah. and lyrics um, came, came in my early teens, I would say. And your parents were they? They were not musicians. No, no, they weren't. Okay. My grandfather, my mom's father, um, was an inventor. He invented hair clips, um, really beauty salons, and um, so I always saw myself more like cut from that cloth, where I was inventing oh, okay. sound. Yeah, but um, but no, my, my mom's brother was trained in on the violin but just sort of amateur you know played in the school orchestra and that sort so no no real formal education on the music side but did you then at what age did you then dis discover that you can or that want to do this as a career did you think about that as saying okay i want to be uh, be a composer well, I definitely wanted to be a musician. Yeah, okay. I, didn't, I didn't think of myself as a songwriter or a composer until <clears throat> later uh, in high school. But I knew that I wanted to make music for the rest of my life. I didn't, there was nothing else that I was good at or cared about um, and only applied to one college for one thing. <laughs> and oh, so, okay. Is very really really focused, uh, much to my my parents' dismay, because they wanted me, you know, to have something to fall back on. Oh yeah, the usual, the usual thing that you hear from, from security. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. If you're going to go into music, it should be the business of music. You know, oh, yeah. a, a manager or a producer or something you know, where money was actually involved. Yeah. And less luck, I suppose. And as a parent now, I totally understand that. But yeah. it didn't feel good not to have their support growing up. That was yeah. hard. Well, I thought um, also, uh, I grew up like that also, that, you know, you have to do something that brings security or that, you know. <laughs> but my children, I I was quite the opposite with them. I was, I was. Oh, good. Um, yeah, I was really thinking, I was watching them, what they were interested in, and and uh, you know, I was listening to also the teachers what the, what the talents were, and and I just decided, listen, go for it. You know, if you've got the talent, if you've got the awesome. dream, then go for it. And um, yeah. there's there's so much time in life to to. Right. do something else if it doesn't work out so I'm, I'm the opposite <laughs> i'm the opposite in that i always felt I like i've always felt if if other parents were saying their children going to university and study some a very very serious degree and and my children were doing ballet then i was thinking am i doing the wrong thing but <laughs> no <laughs> i i'm glad i did it that way yeah Good. There should be more parents like you. I am. I I hope to follow in your footsteps with my son. At least, I mean, he's only yeah. fifteen, but um, so college isn't yet. Oh, okay. But yeah. um, you know, it's it's also something that artists can use to motivate them and like push against, yeah. right? Like, mm. Um, you have something to prove now, so you're gonna strive harder, work harder to show everybody that they were wrong. So yeah. it can be useful as painful as, as it is. A, there's a great quote, um, you know, Bernstein's father was very opposed to him um, trying to make music his, his really? life. Yeah, very discouraging. Um, and when, when Bernstein becomes this famous overnight sensation at the age of 25, um, some reporters interviewed his father about it. And he said, well, how was I supposed to know my son was going to turn out to be Leonard Bernstein? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but Bernstein yeah. definitely, um, I think, felt like he had a lot, a lot to prove because everybody wants um, their parents' uh, support and, and, you know, love and respect. Exactly, and, yeah. And, but now um, also I recently spoke to a soprano who studied uh, to be a dermatologist. So she actually specialized, but she said that it was, uh, she was still so drawn to, to wanting to sing that she, um, she chose that career then in the end to, to be a singer. And so I think you are, you will always go to the thing that you are meant to do. So even I Even if so. your parents guide you in a different direction, you will always go where you're supposed to go. I think so. And, you know, when I speak to young musicians or young artists in, in junior high school or high school, um, and this question often comes up, like, when did you know? How did you know? Uh, what was the path? My advice always is, look, <clears throat> the arts are so hard. As we started talking about at the very beginning of this, 
this chat, there's way more downs than there are ups. Yeah. Uh, and there's just so many obstacles. And especially now, everybody's an artist. Everybody's a creator. Everybody's putting content out there. So you can't, it can't be something that you choose. Um, it has to be something that chooses you. It really exactly. shouldn't feel like there's no other choice. Mm. This is what I have to do. Um, because if you don't have that attitude, there's just it's going to be so hard um, to, to cut through the noise. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's very true. But do you teach as well? I do. Um, very selective because I don't have a lot of time. But um, the one or two students that I do have bring so much joy to my life. Um, mm-hmm. And it's such a, a pleasure to be able to give back and and be in a position um you know where i can help nurture young talent so um, when i feel like it's a good match um i'll do it do you think do you think composing is something you can uh, teach or, or, or you can learn or is it something can you already spot in a student when there is something that's a great question because I used to always say there's you can't teach somebody how to create. And I kind of still believe that, but my thinking has changed a bit. So now my thinking is a person has to have natural talent. It has to already be there. But you can, as a teacher, um, help guide a young talent and help uh, expose that person to other sounds, other ideology, other thinking about structure and form. And so much of composing music or writing a script or a novel is about architecture. That's what people don't always understand. They think, well, I can write a melody. So how hard could this be? But structure and architecture is so vital, Um, especially now where attention spans are so short and you really have to get you have to pull people in and keep their attention. So I think that's learnable. Um, and that's something that I'm very good at. And so I do think you can, you can teach. I think you can teach composition. I think you can teach writing. I don't think you can turn somebody who doesn't have the gift there already into a composer um, or an author, but I do think you can help guide them. Mm. And, um, you know, Bernstein, go, it's always going to go back to Lenny. He had, had this great series when, when he was um, at the New York Philharmonic called The Young People's Guide uh, or the Norton Lectures. So all, he was always teaching um, via TV. And I learned a lot from those, um, you know, just watching them, even though he wasn't specifically teaching me. Um, there's, there's a lot to learn. Um, and I think that if you're curious as a student and you're open, you can be guided. Yes. And then we as teachers, you know, as, as the elders, uh, are also learning as we're teaching. And again, going back to Lenny, he would say, well, in Hebrew, the word to teach is the same as the word to learn. It's the exact same word. Mm -hmm. So when you are teaching, you're also learning. And so I take on students 
um, it's also from a selfish point of view because there's certain certain something that I need to get from the student. Really? Well, you, I've heard this so many times where where musicians say that, you know, and artists say that the moment they teach, then it's also that they learn, they get something back from it. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's very positive to think about that because you're giving, but you're also receiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, D- David, tell me, um, you've done so much, and uh, but what is the next uh, next for you? What is what what are the wishes now? Uh, the wishes are always the simple things, just to be healthy, and that my family continues to be healthy, and that um, you know the world doesn't end, <laughs> fall apart. Yeah. Every time you open the New York Times, it just seems like we're teetering on, you know, on the end. But uh, selfishly, you know, from an artistic standpoint, um, I have a couple new pieces coming up. Uh, one that I'm I'm hesitant to announce yet, oh, okay. but I'll, I'll put it on my socials when I'm ready. But I'm very excited, and we're already working on it. I'm working on it with a choreographer uh, whose name is Melissa Tuba. She's fantastic. Comes from the Merce Cunningham School in the Pam Tanowitz. And um, I'm working on a piece with Stephen Melendez, who's the new, was just named uh, Artistic Director of New York Theatre Ballet. And that's going to premiere in the fall in New York. And it's the first time, yeah, if you're, if you're in town, Copy some tickets. Oh, I would love. I've never been to America. I should go. Oh, come on. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm serious, yeah. Uh, well, you have to come to New York at some point. I, I'll have to. No, definitely. That would be a good a good time to come. It's a good excuse to come. Yeah. Um, and it's exciting for me because um, I'm playing almost all the music on my guitar live on stage. Really? With dancers. <gasps> which I've never done before. So that's another thing, like to always be trying new things and challenging. Yeah. Um, of course, I, I've conducted and I've played in orchestras and I've played in lots of bands and jazz bands and all kinds of venues, but to actually play with dancers on the stage as a soloist is going to be a whole wow. new... Yeah. So that's amazing. That, was it, is and, this your was this how you saw it? Was this your idea to do it like that? Not not at first. When Stephen and I first began talking about this piece, um, it was going to be a small ensemble. Um, and then over the course of months of discussion and, and going back and forth about it and meeting up, up in New York, um, and I don't even remember exactly how. It was just like, oh, wait a second. This would be different. This yeah. would be not. Um, and so I started creating little sketches uh, on my guitar and doing a lot of loop where I'm playing in different textures over top of myself. So it doesn't just sound like a solo guitar. Um, and he got very excited about it. And then I got more excited about it. And that's where we landed. So um, so that's going to be fun. And then I'm, I'm writing a memoir at the same time. Um, that both talks about different experiences I've had in my life that are pretty crazy and uh, also looks at a specific piece of music in each chapter 
So um, that's different for me. I've only ever really written fiction. Um, oh, so really? to actually be pulling mm -hmm. from my real life, it's not chronological or anything. It just sort of comes in and out uh, in, in sort of random um, fashion. And the music that I'm talking about is both, you know, from a sociological and, and um, theoretical point of view, it's, but, but accessible. It doesn't feel like an academic pursuit. So I'm excited about that too. But I think it's so important that you do that, that, you know, that um, because it's from your, it's from your mind then that, that the reader can get that information. I think that's so important that you do that. Right. Yeah. Mm. You'll be the one who reads it. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. No, I would love to. Yeah. No, definitely. I actually spoke to a ballet teacher. Uh, well, she used to be my daughter's ballet teacher at the Royal Ballet. And she was saying the same thing. She She's writing about experiences and she's writing about, you know, the time she spent with Margot Fontaine and and all the things that happen. And and I I get so excited about that because I think it's so needed that artists do that. You know, that we that we hear these stories um behind the scenes. Um that's that's very important. And from the from the artist herself or from you, you know, from you yourself, that that's been written. I think it's very important. I agree. I mean, I think 80% of these are, are autobiographical. Autobiographies are memoirs. So I'm with You'll you. You'll let me know, David, when you're done with that one. I I'm want sure to, I want yeah. to read it, yeah. <laughs> David, it was so lovely to talk to you. I follow you on Instagram and your dog is so cute. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Just arrived. <laughs> it's so we'll be seeing a lot more. She she's gotten more love on my socials than my music does. So really? <laughs> you know, the internet's in love with cute animals, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But um, it was wonderful talking to you. It's really, you've got fascinating, uh, fascinating stories to tell and, and your work also. And I've got you on Spotify now, um, listening to your music, um, amazing work that you're doing. And I really hope that I could one day um, come see to New one York. of your perform. Yeah, yes. come to New York and see one of the performances. You really must, or, or we need to come to Vienna. I think that's also a good idea. Yeah. I haven't been since the 90s, but I would love to come back to Vienna. Yeah. I, love, I love it over there. Um, please don't let us wait another 28 years for oh. your next. <laughs> Not my intent. <laughs> your next wonderful project. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the show. Great pleasure. Great privilege. Bye-bye, David. Bye. -bye, David.